Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Imagine that you are in a foreign country and you develop a malignant illness. To make matters worse, you become dependent on medication with terrible side effects and are unable to understand what is happening to you. Your greatest wish is to return to your country where you feel you may be able to explore the options for further care. Those options are denied to you because before you get there, nature takes its course. For our next guest, this was a real story, the story of her own father and her subsequent journey into patient advocacy. My guest today is Sujin John. You're very welcome to the show, Sujin. We're delighted to be speaking with you today. I understand that your background is in pharmacy. How did you develop an interest in pharmacy? I was an interactive multimedia designer. And after I graduated, I was freelancing wedding videography, very different from being a pharmacist. While I was doing that, my father was diagnosed with cancer and and I had to take care of him. And while I was doing that, we encountered so many healthcare gaps, especially for patients like my dad, who has language barrier and was a foreigner. So he had had an emergency insurance, and he also had many obstacles in getting communication correct. In the midst of all that, he had some medication adverse events that led him to go to emergency department. And what they would do is, so he was on insulin. He was on insulin. Um, it was a complicated from his cancer, either the medication or the disease. We don't know for sure, but he was on insulin and he had esophageal cancer, which if you think about it, the relationship with food and insulin and not being able to eat, eat, this is a huge red flag, you know, as a doctor and as as a pharmacist also, but we were never counseled or or educated about about it. And when we went to ER, they would restore the glucose. When he goes, you know, he had hypoglycemic events, low blood sugar events. So he would lose a consciousness and, and I would take him to ER. And there he would, you know, his glucose would get restored and we would be discharged. And we would repeat the same thing two weeks later. So after the second episode, my dad was very distressed. He clearly wasn't getting better. He kept losing weight. You know, he had a G2 placed from hospital and then he was transferred to nursing home. And then he came to our home and now he has these hypoglycemic events. And he was just so disappointed with the healthcare system that he was in. So he decided to go back to our country, which is South Korea. And we booked our flight because I couldn't let him go by himself. And a week before our flight, he has severe abdominal pain and um, we, had, we had to go to ER again and he had fluids in his lungs and I, I think there might have been some type of organ failure and he passed away. That experience really changed my life and I was really mad, sad, and I felt like I had to do something. I was interested in healthcare before I 
majored in um, art before, but I felt like this was an opportunity that I had to pursue something in healthcare. And, you know, because he had adverse events from insulin, I felt compelled that being a pharmacist was like you, you're, you're acting like a bridge between patients and healthcare system. So that's how I became a pharmacist. It's very, I know it's kind of long, <laughs> it can be longer if I expand it a little more, but um, I do have quite a compelling story how I became a pharmacist. Thank you very much. And firstly, I'm very sorry to hear about your dad. That sounds like a, a very trying time for you and your family. And I'm pleased that something positive came out of it in that you developed an interest in medicine. The interesting thing about this is that you came from a designer background. How has your designer yeah. background helped you in the course of the work that you're now doing? That's a very interesting question. I personally believe the solution for all healthcare problems to be empathy. And I don't know if it's because I have art background or not, but I feel art has is a key to bring empathy in healthcare. And whether it's going to be how we educate students or how we can heal as healthcare system or as patients, I strongly feel art can be a crucial tool to make healing environment for healthcare. And it's just funny the way you asked asked me that question because I really I am in a journey of searching for solutions myself, how to bring that into healthcare. I read a lot about empathy. And in fact, I'm working on a book with a doctor in South Korea about this topic. So how I can bring my passion for patient advocacy and empathy into making safe healthcare for patients. And I feel our healthcare system in the United States is a bunch of patches and it's not, I feel like it's never had been designed per se. It's just one after another. They just keep creating solutions that is not really touching the core of the problem. And the problem I feel, the, the basic core of, of the problem is of empathy. Our healthcare system does not worry about how patients suffer, how much patients suffer in the environment that's created and it's very sad and disheartening for me to even think about that and I feel my experience as a caregiver while I was taking care of my dad and then becoming a healthcare professional afterwards uh, made me to be able to feel for patients I have I truly feel how much suffering and how much patients go through when they are taking care of themselves and loved ones. And I work with a lot of patient advocates who are advocates because they either they experienced medical error or harm, or they've seen or lost their loved ones because of them. And I 
really connect with them very, very well. And it's not what they go through is not just their problem anymore. I feel like it's mine. And I don't know. I think my experience really changed my heart to the core. I want to start in talking about this question and bringing art into it by saying that until we have a decision made on a particular treatment where the patient and doctor have had an informed conversation where the patient is aware of the risks that they will be taking with that particular treatment. Until we have that point, we are not going to get to the point where we have anything like a joint decision made where even if something harmful happens, the patient doesn't feel that this happened without their knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. So the question is, how do we use what you're aware of in art and design in order to have that conversation happening where the patient understands statistics? Because a lot of it is to do with statistics. It's about absolute risk reduction, number needed to treat, number needed to harm, Mm -hmm. and a discussion Mm -hmm. about what you're trying to achieve by offering a particular treatment? So a lot of it comes down to, I feel, is the time. We make solutions to cut down the time and help the physician or healthcare professionals to gain more time. But at the same time, I feel the human-to-human interaction isn't valued as much. And without putting the time, without valuing the time of that human interaction, the, the, you know, designing without that portion. So in other words, you are designing something to make that interaction, I, I would say, less valued, I feel. And I feel art can contribute to uh, making understanding more valuable. For example, let's say you are making decisions together with a uh, you know, patient and a doctor. And I've seen uh, from Mayo Clinic, they, they have cars made you know, in easy to understand format for like diabetic medication. So you know, it'll have information about the medication, what the cost will be like, and what the pros and cons of it will be like. And that will be presented to the patient to make the decisions together with the patient. So something like that, I mean, I feel there are many ways that art can bring the conversation more fruitful and easier to understand for patients. And especially I advocate for patients with language barriers. And there are there's so little time, even less time, focused on this population. And it's not on ignorable amount of people. Reportedly, one in five people in the United States speak foreign language at home. And I'm sure in like Australia, where you are, and in other developed countries, people uh, with language barriers, it's, it's not an ignorable amount of people. And how, how are healthcare systems taking care of these patients? Very poorly. I mean, th- there's really, Really, no design, design, design of healthcare designed for these patients, and I and I can't fathom how much harm, how much suffering that these 
patients are going through because of that. And, you know, I was one of them. I mean, I was fluent in English, of course. And my dad was fluent in English too. But there's, when it comes to healthcare language and when it comes to describing your symptoms, I found it to be very, very difficult. And I saw that, you know, even English speaking patients have a hard time describing their own, own symptoms. So if you don't take the time to set that kind of mindset, in a, in a way, you're designing, if you're a doctor, you're designing the care for that patient, how, how the time will be utilized. You're de- designing that. You're designing how information will be presented, but there's very little time taken to do that. So I think the time is the most crucial component that you have to have in order to design something. Otherwise, it's just rush of things to be done and documented, and you're just, you have to just be out the door. And this is the way the healthcare system is going in many, not just in the United States, many developed countries as well. well so where, where is the patient? Where is the focus on the patient? I mean, patients are not commodities. Patients are not someone who can be just looked at in, in a few minutes and just, and you, you just part, part the way. It's, it's a human interaction, human relationship. And if the time isn't put in, an effort to understand each other isn't put in there, I, I don't see a hope in how to make a healing environment for healthcare. I think in those statements that you've made, you've resonated with every speaker we've had on this podcast from whatever background, mm-hmm. whether they're doctors or mm-hmm. designers or patients or patient advocates, we can all agree that the system is broken mm-hmm. and is not working for anybody, whether they are English-speaking in an English-speaking country or not, it doesn't make any difference. And you're right, time, right. Is, time is a very important part of the equation. And to be fair to doctors, I think doctors are not the ones who designed this system. This was designed in order to make the dollar go further, seemingly, because there was only so much yeah. time available with this very expensively trained medical practitioner. So, in, for example, if you talk about there, somewhere like the, the UK, you've got 1,500 to 2,000 patients for every doctor. And therefore, your 10 minutes or 15 minutes consultation in primary care is what the government is prepared to subsidize. And unless mm-hmm. you ask patients to pay for extra time, privately, they won't. And of course, in countries where you've got a system where that's the only mm-hmm. medical practice available to you, that's what you choose. And you're right. And that's the challenge for you as a designer, for you as a patient advocate, for you as a pharmacist, is to create in- innovations that will allow us not to upend the system because that's not going to happen. There's not going to be more money in any economy at any time in, in the near future. But how do we create the opportunity for an exchange that is meaningful, bearing in mind that you only have a short amount of time? And this is where it comes to the other part of your advocacy role, and that is that pharmacists may have a lot to offer. Do you want to say something about Yeah, so the the reason why I work as a private professional patient advocate is just what you described. 
So I have a pharmacist job as uh, my main role, but I also work as a consultant for a um, patient advocacy company. And I work with patient advocates who are privately hired by patients. And we go to doctor's appointments. We communicate with the doctors, pharmacies, and even lawyers for uh, end-of-life planning, hospice planning, power of attorney, everything that you need as a patient. And we communicate those important information with healthcare system, helping patients to be able to effectively communicate with the system, whether it's a doctor or whoever that may be. And pharmacists, of course, as a pharmacist, there's a lot of things that I can accommodate in communicating dosing, uh, interactions, and you know, cost effectiveness of medications. And there's tons of opportunities and tons of other things that I can be doing as a patient advocate. I was told that there isn't a patient advocacy in the terms that I am describing in Australia, but I'm not sure if that's really true, but the ability that it can happen anywhere in the world, that this can be a necessity in the near future because our healthcare system is very, very complicated. And I think in the United States, the cost and then the um, complexity of healthcare system made the patient advocates to be necessary. And, and this, the, these roles are not well known to patients yet, not just yet, but I feel more and more people are valuing what we do. And even doctors are, you know, at first they're very resistant, but after they see what we do, facilitating communication and providing, you know, professionally um, well-maintained um, medical information to them, they, they see the value of what we do. So we work with doctors quite well and um, skilled nursing, nursing facilities. Um, anything that patient needs, we, we are there for them. The one thing I would say is mm-hmm. that we are beginning to see a seismic shift in the way that healthcare will be delivered in the future because patients are much more interested in having a conversation about their own care. Mm-hmm. We know, for example, that patients who've got diabetes or hypertension or depression, they tend not to take their medication long-term in any large proportion, which may be actually one way that we've avoided having more medical errors because the longer you take a medication, the more risk there is of harm uh, to the patient. Mm -hmm. Something that may happen Mm -hmm. anyway, but something that often happens because something goes wrong in the way that that medication is handled um, by the patient or, or taken by the patient in particular circumstances, as was the case in your father's very sad story. So when we, when we come to it, I guess we'll get to the point where when somebody presents with a chronic illness and they have a meaningful conversation about the treatment that 
may help them in that situation, then we will have achieved what you and I agree is needed in terms of improving healthcare outcomes. Yeah, but I feel it's somewhat the complexity and and I also see, especially in the United States, I feel patients inevitably have to participate in their own care because I feel patients are pushed to different providers, specialists. When you know primary doctor cannot figure something out, they will be sent to another specialist, and that specialist will like push that patient to another person, another specialist. It, that's very, very common, and and there's really no accountability. There's no one really saying this patient is my patient. I am responsible for this patient. There's really. No one who's doing that, I feel. And, you know, although primary care you know, provider does take care of a lot of different things, once, they, once patients have um, more than one chronic condition, they have to see all these specialists. And I, I don't know if I'm put into that patient's position. I see so many patients who have... Like let's say you have diabetes, you you have a podiatrist, you have ophthalmologist, you have endocrinologist, you have primary care provider. You now you have four doctors that you are managing by yourself. Who to see, where to go? I don't know if I'm a am a patient if I can really handle that all by myself. And that makes pay some patients who are very active in their own care inevitable but to participate in their own care because otherwise you feel like no one really cares about you i've had opportunities to interact with you know founders of society for participatory medicine like dave de Broncart or um dr dave um daniel sands and those are the founders of the society for participatory medicine that was Founded with the idea that patients have rights to participate in their own care. But I also see the point of view that uh, unless you do that, you can fall into cracks so easily. Yes, I agree. And I think that when you think about it, what has happened in what you're describing is that the patient has been broken up into bits. You know, this bit is is your diabetes. This bit is your hypertension. That bit is your depression, etc. And then further divided, mm-hmm. there is a reductionist approach to medicine. And we hear the opposite views as well. We hear views like those of Jim Mould, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago from Oklahoma University. And he mm-hmm. talks about goal-oriented care. And he says, what we need to be asking, and I paraphrase here, is what do you, the patient, want from the care that you're about to receive? You know, what do you want for this problem? What is your ideal outcome? What is the goal that you've set for yourself? You might have asked your father that right. same question. And the question is, do you want your diabetes tightly controlled or do you want something more? Do you want, is there something that you are hoping for that we can help you to achieve? And how can we do that in a way that doesn't burden you with all of this other thing that we're asking you to do? We didn't talk about cost here, but think about think about the cost 
benefits of seeing all these specialists and your primary doctor when it was not as specialized before, like before, you probably only had to just see your primary and be done with it. But you have to pay all these doctors separately. I mean, the cost, I cannot even fathom the cost for, you know, treating this patient, how expensive care would be. And if this patient, you know, has to choose insulin over food, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I get really emotional um, when I talk about these things. When you develop a chronic illness, it becomes a burden. It is a yet another burden. You've got appointments to keep. You've got medication to take. You've got costs to bear. You've got all manner of things, your lifestyle changes, etc. And Victor Montori from the Mayo Clinic, again, somebody I interviewed some time ago, talks mm-hmm. about the burden of care mm-hmm. and how that burden mm-hmm. is not recognized. And when we start to recognize mm-hmm. that burden, we begin to see that there may be a better way for us to tailor the care that we're providing, even within the system we currently have, which is broken, in order to do what Jim Mould quite rightly calls goal-oriented care. We don't ask enough questions to patients what they want, what really matters to them. And sometimes I feel patients also feel embarrassed to admit on some of the things. It's, you know, they have to feel, patients have to feel safe to share information. And with rushed time and you know this and patients often say oh you know when when i try to you know talk to the patient and counsel on medications patients have this misconception that doctors know their ins and outs that but which is really not true and like you mentioned you know 1500 patients per doctor is a very common number here it's more than 2000 i was told per doctor and patients have this misconception that doctors know know it all about their condition their meds and their they remember all these things and which is you I'm sure you know that's not really true and it's really hard to convince patients too that pharmacists can you know offer valuable advice and make recommendations sometimes sometimes some patients are very very resistant to that they you know only trust doctors and it's really hard to make interventions as pharmacists at times i sometimes wonder maybe i should have become a doctor (laughs) i i think that is changing though i mean there are many patients who value pharmacists and you know seek advice and many pharmacists are nowadays in the United States, um, I don't know about other countries necessarily, but we we have other roles. Some some states even allow prescribing medication under doctor supervision, of course. But which I think um, more and more patients are increasingly seeing our values and what we can offer. Yes, I think that's true. Also, in this part of the world, in that increasingly there is more of a role for pharmacists. And that is to be welcome because it is yet another person who is available to the patient, often at no cost, that would help them to navigate this complex journey with a complex and often multiple chronic illnesses. I think part of the 
problem that we face is that we want to believe. We need to believe that our doctor knows all of these things because it is that that belief that often drives the impact that a doctor has on the patient's life. Right, right. And I've started writing in a platform called Medium. And what I want to achieve by studying empathy and art and why I'm doing all you know, all those studies or, you know, observations is because, you know, after I became a pharmacist, I realized that patients having empathy for healthcare professionals also um, contribute to healing environment of healthcare. And I know it may sound like that's very difficult for patients to do, which is true, for many cases, but when that does happen, I've seen amazing things happening. So as as you've alluded to, it's not the doctors who are wanting to, you know, care less about patients. It's the system. And the system is putting all of us, not just patients, healthcare professionals as well, in an environment that are not safe. We don't feel safe to care for patients the right way. And, you know, that's the reason why I advocate for empathy, advocate for art as a tool to restoring that empathy in healthcare. We need to realize that part of the victim here is also the person on the other side of the desk who has to spend their day delivering care in ways that may, they may or may not actually feel comfortable delivering. And, and I often say to my colleagues that if the day, you should start the day asking yourself, can I afford to be here today, both financially, psychologically, and in other ways that you, that your needs may or may not be being met. Can I afford to do this? Mm-hmm. And if you can't afford to do it, maybe the time has come to make different choices about how you turn up in the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think healthcare is just so hard to change uh, in many different levels. And I know leaderships have to be open for new ideas. I don't see any other for healthcare for healthcare to be able to change in a meaningful way. And I hope healthcare leaders start to see in patients' perspective not just counting the dollars, how much we can make out of caring for patients, but truly caring for what patients want and what patients care for and what patients really need. I feel more time needs to be spent and also building the culture within healthcare system among healthcare workers is just so crucial, but underestimated at so many levels. It's, it's a necessity to create an environment where patients are truly cared and um, healthcare workers truly feel safe to be honest about, about mistakes when it happens, not just hide them. And I'm very passionate about patient safety because of what happened to my dad. Cheese hole, the Swiss cheese hole model that we often talk about in patient safety 
is what happened to my dad. And some, you know, would say to me that, why did you, why didn't you sue? And like, I would reply, who do, who do I sue? Do I sue everyone? I mean, if there was only one, I feel the only, only one caregiver or healthcare professional who would have taken time to talk to us and educate us and if there and and I see that as a as that that person could be a patient advocate. And if that person was there, maybe my dad would have lived a little longer, you know, be able to enjoy his life a little bit more. And that is why I'm an advocate. I'm choosing to be an advocate because of that. Without without that heart, without that care. I, I say this, it's it's a miracle if a patient walks out the hospital and healthcare system safely and and healthy in you know, and that patient is healthy at the end of the care. It's a miracle that way. And it shouldn't be. You expect to be healed when you walk into the healthcare system. But that's not really that's not really true. And and I at some level I feel all patients should know that for their own safety. I mean, to it's it's a sad truth. And in order for that to happen, the patients have to participate. Patients have to be vigilant about their protection. I don't see how else if how else to you know to be able to be safe as a patient. If it's a, a hiring advocate, maybe that can help help out, but. At the end of the day, it is oftentimes the patient himself or herself that have to be aware of what they're going in, going into. Yes, I can see that perspective. I would sort of challenge it a little bit and say that many of the doctors who speak on this podcast are doing amazing things, notwithstanding all of the limitations of the system that they work in to produce some amazing work with patients who are extre- extremely both lucky to have them as doctors, but also very much working alongside that doctor to achieve their goals. I'm going to ask you now to talk a little bit more about your dad, just if that's okay. Could you say what your father would have wanted in those weeks leading up to his final parting? He probably would have wanted to be able to go to Korea and get care there, where he can communicate without problem and where he knows he can afford the care that he wants. Um, you know, we were going to get second opinion at MD Anderson and because it was out of network uh, from his insurance, because it, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield, Illinois, which is our state. If we go out of state, that will be out of network. And just getting the second, second opinion there was $50,000. And that was half of his life saving. And he gave up on that. I mean, he, if we could afford it, we would have gotten second opinion. And there are many advocates and doctors wanting patients to get second opinion. And may, many patients do. But if it's not affordable, it's not an option. So it's not just the complexity but it's the cost that needs to be taken care. Without containing the cost, I just feel any other issues that we talk about 
will not be able to t- be taken care at all because it's just too much, too much money wasted in inpatient care. And I, I think that he would have wanted to get second opinion and the outcome from that second opinion might have been different. What they offer could have been different, but he never got that chance. So he would have probably liked more affordable care for sure. I understand and I can see why he would. And I share with you the indignation that care is not affordable uh, for you. It is affordable for many of us in other parts of the world, but it clearly isn't in the system in which you found yourselves. So I guess the answer to your the answer seems to have been that if the goal had been to get him to Korea safe and well, relatively well, he might have been able to say, I had a chance to explore my other options. Without getting there, he was not going to get that chance to explore what other options were available to him. So the goal in that case was quite simple, really. It was to get this man safely to where he needed to go in order to get what he wanted and to make peace with whatever was going to unfold thereafter. Correct. It doesn't seem like a lot to ask, Sujin. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And I get very emotional when I think about... um, Every job interview I went, I I couldn't go without tears because um, they would ask me why I became a pharmacist and I have to answer. I'm so sorry um, that it happened that way. And I'm so, I'm so yeah. sorry that people ask you the question, but it's a good question. And it is a question that will be the legacy of what happened to him to say that you are making a difference to patients like him who come since then in order that they don't have the similar problem, that their desires, their goals for their lives are front and foremost in the minds of the health practitioners, no matter what system they're working for, no matter what, how it is organized, that it is front and center of our minds as doctors. What does this man need from us? And can we do this simply? And can we do this without adding to an extraordinary burden that they're already carrying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. People from my country here and who have language barriers, they go to South Korea uh, for a medical trip and they get like head to toe examination from CT scans, uh, MRIs, whatever you need. They can get it for probably like one tenth of the cost that you would pay from here. I mean, not only that, you have difficulty of getting it approved, right? They won't approve CT scan MRI without a reason. And oftentimes when they go, I wouldn't, I don't know if how often that would be, but quite a few pa- people would find out they have terminal illness during that process. And then, you know, they would come back and prepare final days sometimes. And this is very common. They're very common practice. They have a package, like they have you know, travel agencies having packages, uh, convincing seniors for these trips. You know, it, the package would include the hospital stay, the airfare and everything. And even with that cost and the time that you spend, 
it's still a lot less and a lot more convenient to get um, these examinations in my country, in South Korea. So many seniors go on to these trips and come back. And it's not a solution necessarily, but they do what they have to do. They have to figure out their own care. And sometimes someone like my friend who passed away three months ago, she wanted to do that, but she couldn't because she was too weak. She, she was same age as me and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer, stomach cancer that spread to her bones and everywhere. And two months was all she could afford to live. She wanted to go to see if there was anything, but there, she couldn't get that chance either. And I see, I begin to see these people in my communities. As I age, it's not just my father's age or my parents, you know, my parents or my grandparents' age anymore. It's my age. And it'll soon be my kids' age. And I don't know how long I can just keep watching them and just mourn. And I, I bet there are many patients like this all over the world, not being able to speak up and just suffering and not knowing what to do. And how often do we talk about this population? Unless I speak up, I, don't, I rarely encounter anyone speaking up about it. And that's why I decided to speak up. And remember that a mark of a civilization is how we treat our children. It's how we treat our old people. It's how we treat those who are vulnerable. That is, has always been the mark of the greatness of a country. And I believe that there are many great people in the US, those that I've spoken to on this program who are doctors, who are patients, who are advocates, who will make this happen, can make this happen by speaking up for people who need it the most and who, as you say, want to be given the chance to make their own choice, to make a decision for themselves that they're comfortable with because they often have to make peace with something they have no control over and will unfold as it will. Medicine is exactly that. Cancer does not, doesn't choose which patients are, are going to be lost. COVID does not discriminate between races or colors or anything else. It essentially will have its way, but we need to have some control. Control in the sense that we make the choices that we want to make and not the choices that are foisted on us by a system that's designed for a very different purpose. Yes, I agree. And oftentimes when I speak up for minority patients, a lot of times people will have this notion that I'm talking about color people, but that's not necessarily true. If you look at it in a global perspective, you can be a minority in many different ways. So you can be a minority as a child in a group of elderly. You can be a minority when you visit a foreign country and you know how health is affected like you said does not discriminate race or circumstances necessarily but often we have this tunnel vision that if it doesn't affect me 
we, we sometimes lose the care that the other person may need. And I feel as we, we are more used to in, like instant gratifying satisfaction, the care for others is kind of dissipating in a way. And I see that in healthcare as well. And I'm quite fearful and afraid that if something is not done in education of healthcare professionals and even maybe educating the patients as well, being very patient safety focused person as I am, I fear the safety that we are seeking for is going to just crumble away. And this notion of urgency is what I want people to recognize as we all of us deal with COVID all over the world, I feel like it may be the opportunity to do that. You know, healthcare professionals have always been caring for patients, but with the COVID, now patients feel and realize that how much sacrifice that um, healthcare professionals are doing and providing every day. And, you know, the, the you know, pouring um, love for healthcare workers and calling them heroes is, is everywhere, but they have been always heroes, but now patients just feel it because of COVID. And I feel, although this having COVID is a quite distressing and negative for in many ways for all of us, I see that positive in that situation. And I feel this is the opportunity to make big changes. And um, I'm hopeful that it'll happen. I think you're right to be hopeful. I think that the more conversations that we have here and elsewhere is exactly resonant with the message that you have brought to us today. So Jinjun, it's been an honor speaking with you. The story of, of your father was deeply moving. I'm very, very sorry that it, it panned out the way it did. May he rest in peace. And we thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.